and welcome to Backchat, nature's monthly peek behind the curtains of the newsroom. If the Nature Podcast is a seminar from a visiting professor, then Backchat is a journal club led by sarcastic undergraduates. We're here to discuss the science we've been mulling over for the past month or so. I'm Kerry Smith and I'm delighted to have with me three of nature's best as always. I have Davide Castelvecchi in the studio. Hi, Kerry. Yes, I am a physical sciences and uh, occasionally mathematics writer. We also have Lizzie Gibney in the studio. Hello, I also write about physics and I'm also based here in London. And Alexandra Witsey joining us on the line from Boulder, Colorado. Yes, good morning, Kerry. I cover Earth and planetary sciences and also sometimes some astronomy for nature. Great news. All right. Well, coming up in this show, the revelation that renowned astronomer Jeff Marcy sexually harassed several students over a period of many years. How has astronomy as a community responded and what are the implications even further afield? Plus, reporting on mathematics and mathematicians. Davide had that pleasure this month and will be reporting back to us on what it's like to cover the abstract concepts and colourful personalities of that field. And finally, some light relief in the form of fashion science from the dress that displays the Whereas Twitter feed, mine would be so interesting, to nanoparticles that promise superior stain repellent, for instance, some fashion designers are sciencing the hell out of their clothing ranges. Well, first, to astronomer Jeff Marcy and the fallout from the sexual harassment case. On the 9th of October, it was revealed by BuzzFeed that the University of California, Berkeley, Jeff Marcy's institution, had investigated him and found that he had sexually harassed several students in many separate incidents. And days afterwards, he resigned. Alex Switzy, you reported on this for Nature. What actions, first of all, did the university take? Well, it's been a very interesting story because it's it's pretty rare that you get such a prominent astronomer who's gone through an entire formal university investigation and then to have been found to have violated sexual harassment policies on multiple times with multiple students. So um, it's been very interesting because the university has its hands tied somewhat in terms of how it can discipline faculty members. So... Uh, Back in June, the investigation was concluded and found that Marcy had sexually harassed students. But the university can't unilaterally discipline a faculty member. There's all sorts of steps involved in terms of sanctions and alerts and faculty committees that have to weigh in. So the university essentially, what some people say, gave him a slap on the wrist. They said, look, if you do this again, you will not be subject to the usual faculty protections. If you do this again, you may be fired. Uh, You may be sanctioned in other ways, or you may be outright fired all the way. And that response, which was sort of dictated by what the university could do legally, prompted a huge outcry among astronomers, because again, they saw it as just a slap on the wrist. Such a big outcry that then, as a consequence of that, he resigned. He did. Uh, He resigned from the University of California, Berkeley, San Francisco State, where he had an adjunct position, also terminated that. He left as leader of this $100 million study project, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, that was just announced um, earlier earlier this year. So all these, you know, huge projects that he's been running, he's, he's basically out of all of them now. And he, I mean, as you were mentioning there, he's a pretty big name. He's been mentioned even as a potential Nobel laureate for his work on exoplanets. I mean, how much will something like this affect his science past and his science future? Uh, well, for Marcy in particular... Uh, clearly, nobody really can tell whether he's going to have a research future or not. I mean, I personally think it would be surprising if he were managed to continue research and, uh, after the, the wake of all this. Um, but I think maybe an interesting question is whether exoplanet research as a whole is going to survive. Because 20 years ago, when a lot of this started, and when Marcy was a true pioneer, when he was one of the very first 
few uh, leaders to be finding exoplanets, it was a really small field. And uh, him leaving, I think, 20 years ago would have really kind of shifted the landscape. But here we are 20 years on. We've got thousands and thousands of exoplanets. We have massive, you know, massive quantities of exoplanet scientists, many of whom are young researchers who've gotten into the field in the last 20 years. You know, I think it's going to be just fine. I talked to a lot of astronomers who are exoplanet scientists, and they're like, you know, this field is way more than Jeff Marcy. We have lots of things to discover, lots of things to do, and we're going to be just fine. And is there any hint, Alex, that, that Berkeley themselves might go about changing their regulations or the kind of systems they have in place to make it an environment where people feel more willing to speak up? And the fact that it's been going on for 10 years, how many women could not have suffered if right at the beginning of that, this issue was dealt with immediately? You know, I agree. I'd be hugely surprised if the Berkeley administration doesn't change their entire procedure for how it disciplines faculty members. Um, Of course, that's like a really complicated thing, right? Because all the faculty have to get together and agree on what sanctions they're they're able to be subject to. And of course, faculty typically don't like to be subject to the university telling them what to do. But in cases like this, there have to be protections for students. So I'd be hugely surprised if it didn't change, you know, a lot of campus policies about how they can deal with a faculty member who's been who's been found to have violated really important, significant policies. Alex, I also wonder, you mentioned it's unusual for a university investigation to uh, uh, reach such a conclusion. Is it possible that what's unusual is for the results of the investigation to become public? And maybe this kind of thing goes on all the time, but universities, you know, for PR reasons, they try to keep them hush-hush. I think it's a great point, Davide, right? Because the Berkeley had a lot invested in not having this come out and be public. Um, I mean, the reason it broke up open was because of this report in BuzzFeed News. And, um, you know, if if that hadn't broke, I'm not entirely sure what would have happened. I mean, there's been people talk about how uh, Marcy's behavior has been an open secret in the in the astronomy community. And I have to say, as a as a reporter, I feel um, a, a bit silly not to have known this open secret. Right. Um, I was at one of the uh, American Astronomical Society meetings where reportedly some you know, inappropriate behavior had been going on. And I missed all this completely, right? So, um, you know, what role do we have as journalists to bring these stories to the public? And what do we do um, when this stuff is going on and we don't necessarily know about it? I'm hoping that this Marcy case may be kind of a touchstone for, for breaking open this kind of stuff. It's clear that the Marcy case has rocked astronomy. But what about, much more widely, the role of you know, the PhD advisor, Jeff Marcy, was supervising many of these students who, you know, the allegations were then made against him by them. And he's possibly the only person responsible for their future in science. Are there more general implications here for how PhDs are supervised, how, you you know, the future of one person can be in another person's hands entirely? And there's a power imbalance there. I think, in general, they are trying to shift towards having more than one supervisor for a PhD, and not just for reasons of, of potential sexual harassment. But as you say, just because what if they don't get on with each other? What if there is um, the, the particular direction that they want to go in their supervisor doesn't agree with? Their whole career could really be in that person's hands and it's quite dangerous to have it so singularly um, down to just one person. And what about the policies that other universities have for reporting things like this? Because I'm sure it can't be just astronomy that's subject to these kinds of difficulties. I mean, last year there was a survey of academic field experiences that highlighted a large extent of harassment there. I mean, two thirds of the respondents to that survey, and there were hundreds of respondents, had experienced sexual harassment on some field trip at some point in their 
in their careers, most of them in their early careers. How should science try and bring these to light a little bit more? I think a large amount of the problem is that people don't report it. So you might have an anonymous survey like that where they do, but actually coming out and saying that this has happened within your institution is can be a real gamble for people, especially if those they're accusing are in powerful positions like, like Marcy was. So I, I think it's it's really tough. I mean, as Alex was saying, as our responsibility as journalists, it's made me think that maybe we should be putting in more um, freedom of information requests and trying to figure out at least have some of these reports been done. You know, have have there been complaints filed? Have investigations been carried out? And just then not been publicised, been quietly put somewhere. Um, so maybe that's something that we should have a role in as well. And, you know, another possible venue for some of this stuff happening is through not just individual institutions, but also academic societies. The American Astronomical Society is going to be changing its code of ethics as a specific result of what's been happening with Marcy so that if so, so that someone can come to the society with a complaint if they aren't able to get action through their own institution. As a side note to this story... BuzzFeed were the ones that broke this on the 9th of October. It's a pretty solid kind of community story, a core story for publications like ours, not necessarily for BuzzFeed, but they keep breaking all these really important science stories. I mean, how do you guys... I don't know. Do you, do you watch what they do in science coverage? Are you following them closely? Yeah. So BuzzFeed is amazing, right? It's usually like, you know, top 10 things that, you know, naked mole rats do and, you know, in the dark of the night or something like that, or, you know, 10 amazing stars that will make your eyes pop out or whatever. Um, but in this case, there's they're doing some really incredibly hardcore science journalism. And I attribute it to their um, to their science editor, Virginia Hughes, who is amazing and has assembled sort of a top notch cast of reporters including Azeem Goriashi, who's the one who broke the Jeff Marcy story. So um, amidst the kind of, you know, the BuzzFeed, uh, I don't know, the, the stereotype of BuzzFeed and the types of stuff they cover, they're doing incredibly hardcore science journalism when this little team that Jenny, Jenny Hughes leads, it's, uh, it, they've been great. I read them constantly. They're doing hardcore everything journalism, frankly, aren't they? They're one of the few um, places that seems to be investing quite heavily in reporting resources when, especially in the States, a lot of newspapers, traditional newspapers are kind of dying a death. Yeah, well, we'll we'll see how long it lasts for sure. Um, And I'm actually just looking at BuzzFeed Science page right now and the top story is, are you actually smarter than a crow? No, the answer is no. So there are those types of stories, but then, um, but yeah, but but Ginny's done a great job in, in leading this team. That maybe they you know bring in some of the revenue. They have loads of click throughs. They can have. They probably get a load of money from advertisers. So maybe they then can afford to get in great journalists and do some really sterling work. Now, of course, the pages of Nature are not short of great reporting. And uh, Davide, one thing that you've been working on lately is a profile of. Uh, now, correct me if I pronounce this wrong. Shinichi Mochizuki. Indeed, he's a number theorist, or some would say an arithmetic geometer. And he has uh, become somewhat of a minor celebrity, especially in Japan, after three years ago, reports that he had posted some 500 pages worth of uh, mathematics on his website. And he claimed that he had uh, finally solved the problem that he had been working on for more than 10 years. And it's something called the ABC conjecture. You're shaking your head as if to say, would you like to know more about this conjecture? <laughs> and or maybe not. <laughs> you're right. I would like you to try and uh, act it out. I'm only joking. Um, yeah, try and explain it to us if you can. <laughs> so the ABC conjecture is called ABC because it has to do with adding two numbers, A and B, and looking at the result, C. And we're talking about whole numbers. It has to do with the relationship between two things we're very familiar with, which are addition and multiplication. 
And so the ABC conjecture links the primes that uh, are part of the numbers A and B with those that are part of the number C. And it took him 500 pages of dense mathematics to prove, I suppose, that um, the ABC conjecture was correct. And that's the tricky part because not everyone is convinced that he has indeed found the proof. Mostly because most people have not read, most specialists in this field have not had the nerve to read his 500 pages. It's something that has been described as mathematics from another planet or from the future. So to this day, three years later, three years later, there's only four people who say they have fully read the entire thing and that they buy it. They think that Mochizuki found the proof. They're the ones who have come out alive. Now, the things that in, you've hit, both of the things that particularly interest me about this story as a kind of reporting process, right? And one of them is the man himself. He's not a recluse. He's very happy to talk people through his work if they will go to him and spend the time doing that. Um, but as a reporter, did you find that frustrating? I mean, how, did you, how do you profile someone you can't visit or speak to? Journalists have to profile people all the time without talking to them. A lot of times it's, uh, you know, people who are, I don't know, big names in the industry or uh, politicians. So that was, um, you know, it, it made it a little bit difficult to, uh, uh, you know, check some of the details of his life. And it, I certainly would have preferred to have his his personal take. But overall, you know, I mean, that was part of what made it interesting, the fact that he was not no, he was so enigmatic. Maybe uh, maybe people would have not been as interested if he had been more open. I don't know. So the man is enigmatic. The subject matter is dense, even for mathematicians. I mean, I'm not just being dense myself, right? This is this is very, very difficult to understand. Other arithmetic geometers, right? That's the term. I've just learned that today. They don't understand what he's talking about either. So how do you as the reporter go about trying to explain this to, you know, a general reader? Well, okay, I have to confess, I could, I tried to browse his papers and I tried to ask uh, other mathematicians to uh, give me a rough outline. It probably would have, even though I have a PhD in mathematics, it would probably would have taken me several years to get to the point where I could understand it. But then without being able, you know, you make peace with that, you think, okay, I'm probably not going to fully understand the nuances of this. But then how do you go about communicating you know, the nature of it to the mainstream, I suppose. It makes it easier when um, something has to do with numbers that, you know, you can easily, easily visualize. There are branches of math where it's a lot harder and then you have to resort to metaphors and so on. Um, so the statement of the conjecture, at least, was something that was, to some extent, easy to state. How Mochizuki went about creating his entire math- mathematical universe and, and proving it there you you know you have to come up with some kind of very very simplified language based on what people tell you and and in this case uh i talked to experts and then i i did my best did you use any analogies i mean they can be very helpful uh, one analogy that i think did make the cut was uh the fact that mochizuki takes the structure of multiplication and deforms it and it's similar to what happens when you take a circle and you deform it into an ellipse. Um, mm, Lizzie's so you face have... has gone funny. <laughs> it always looks like this when I'm thinking. <laughs> and and I mean the, the 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 analogy goes deeper than it's not just purely an analogy with geometry because there is actually a connection with geometry and with deformations of algebra of what they what are called algebraic curves. 
I mean, Lizzie, you must, um, in covering the more esoteric aspects of physics, you must run into some of the same problems. Yeah, usually it's when I'm... uh Yeah, trying to explain anything in quantum physics is always a bit of a challenge. And sometimes it's a case of um, you read it and you talk to the researchers and you have a wonderful epiphany moment where you think, I've got this, this is fast, this is amazing. And then you come to write it down, it's, oh God, it's gone. Sometimes they really are just concepts which our brains are not designed to be able to understand because they're not of our macroscopic world. I remember Jeff Brumfield, when he was working here reporting on physics, doing an interview, a quantum physics interview, in which the closest and most helpful analogy the speaker could draw to the work they'd just been doing is to say that if you imagine you were in a hotel room, he'd said, oh, is it like half the pillow is on the bed and the other half is under the bed? And he and she said, no, it's like half the pillow is on the bed and the other half is in the maid's head. <laughs> and, uh, well, we just left it in because we thought people love to have their brains melted. Isn't it true, listeners? So... I mean, Mochizuki is one of a number of people who in maths have had profiles written of them. Their personalities are something of an outlier, I suppose. I mean, is it? am I right, Davide? After all, you did study maths at PhD level. It's the inevitable question. Does math make you awkward and you know socially inept? Or does it attract more people who are socially inept? Do you need to be socially inept to be a mathematician? And in in the end, it's not necessarily true that all mathematicians are, uh, I mean, we're all nerds, let's face it. But what I discovered from reporting this story is that Mochizuki was actually not that socially awkward, you know, compared to a lot of uh, other mathematicians who have been um, um, profiled in the media. He is just very reserved, you know, very private and very focused on his math, but he's also, according to all people I, I talk to, he's uh, friendly and, and, you know, he makes eye contact with you when he speaks. And and so, uh, you know, it was also, you know, kind of refreshing that the stereotype was not um, confirmed in this case. I have one question for Davide. I just wanted to know what you think is actually going to happen with this. I mean, we're kind of at a stalemate, right, where he's put his work out there and says, well, here's what I've done, and everyone else is trying to make sense of it, but hasn't quite been able to. What do you think is going to happen? Is this going to remain a stalemate forever? Or is someone going to finally be able to figure out whether he's right or not? I have a feeling that sort of the needle is moving slowly towards acceptance. So at the beginning, there were just a lot of people who were very skeptical, and and no one, literally no one, for maybe a year or more had been able to understand anything in what Majizuki had done. And now uh, there are uh, more people who are becoming interested in in, in, you know, in making a serious effort and there's going to be a workshop in December and then another one at December here in the UK and then another one in Japan next year. And um, we'll see. I mean, the, the general feeling seems to be that what he's done is probably interesting uh, and and relevant even if he hasn't proved, because he built a, an entire new uh, mathematical uh, field. And people think maybe there's there's value in it, even if he didn't actually have, you know, reach a complete proof of this theorem. Is this a unique example? Have there been other cases like this in the history of maths, or indeed, I guess, in any kind of theoretical subject where somebody's come up with this proof that, that nobody else can verify? There's been cases where people have written proofs that nobody else was interested in reading. Oh. <laughs> and then there's been proofs where people did read them and find and found mistakes. 
But this one, this one is a particularly unusual one, yes. Because it's a lot of work, isn't it, after all? I mean, it's going to take somebody years, potentially, to sit down and understand someone else's work when they could spend that time developing their own proof for a different theorem. You've got to be quite altruistic. It reminds me of the whole issue with reproducibility that we spoke about on the last Black Chat, in fact, um, because if this were an experiment and someone had done something, they came up with this amazing result, and finally we've cracked it. Um, number one, probably you'd have a, a team in the first place rather than an individual, which I'm sure would help because they'd all hopefully understand it and understand each other um, and then you'd have to write it up in such a way that everyone else could go out there and do their best to, to come up with the same result and the final irony in all of this is that I was told Mochizuki does not like to read other people's papers I've heard that from a few kind of top people actually that they don't like to read other people's papers which I found astounding but if he's in his own universe and they're all written in a different universe you know he just does he probably doesn't quite he just thinks they're wrong. He doesn't need to read their proof to just imagine that they might be wrong. A lot of professional mathematicians uh, don't—they uh, they understand other people's work from, you know, they go to a talk, they understand maybe the, the the general outline or strategy, and then they recreate it in their minds. I'm going to take your word for that. <laughs> and um, but I think now is a good time to move on to something. Le- I mean, it's a lot lighter, isn't it? Let's I'm not face sure it. it. Could be any further on the end of the spectrum. <laughs> this, this final segment, Lizzie's going to lead, and we're going to talk about fashion science. The science. Of fashion, science in fashion is is more to the point. Science in fashion, definitely, and kind of technology in fashion. Um, this is kind of a wave that has been happening quite gradually over the last couple of years. It kind of came in with, I guess it started with wearables. We can track our heart rates and, and, and kind of breathing rates and know where we are and have accelerometers and things like that. And then because of sportswear, that's starting to get into actual clothing. So there are a few different brands now that have that woven in, like conductive fibres in your T-shirt already. So you just chuck on that top to go for a run and it'll come up with all this lovely, lovely data for you to pour over. Um, So it started off that way. And then now fashion houses, designers are starting to think, oh, these are kind of completely new and interesting ways of using materials and working technology into clothing and starting, uh, especially at some of the big fashion weeks. So it's the kind of high-end stuff that we're talking about here. They're, They're starting to weave this into their work and coming up with some quite intriguing results. Now, depending on what you feel about fashion, whether you think it's sort of a high art form or a giant gimmick, um, is this are these things ever going to be useful? I feel so stereotypical asking that as a journalist. Well, what are the applications of these things? I know. Well, so some of them certainly are. And I think that's the area that's going to probably take off. So so um, in the examples that I was looking at, so this actually came from doing an interview with one particular guy called Ali Yetison, who's um, over at Harvard. And what he makes are responsive materials, like smart materials. So if you had, you were feeling stressed, um, you, a sensor on your skin would pick that up and it could change the colour of the material. And it could be also picking up on glucose levels or, um, or temperature. And there are lots of different ways in which it can respond to your environment and change because of that. And that has a lot of uh, practical applications. You could think of um, a T-shirt that that tells you when you've been in the sun too long, you know, it can, uh, that you're going to be getting UV damage, for instance. And then on the other side, there's also very practical applications in it. It might be that um, because you have these silver nanoparticles, if they're woven into fibres, then uh, they naturally um, will repel water and can be antibacterial. Um, When you see some of this going down the catwalk, it does make me think, uh, is that something that I would want to wear, for instance, so that... So there's um, one company called Chromat um, who've been working with Intel 
And they had two particular products that they were showing um, in the New York Fashion Week um, a couple of weeks ago. One was quite practical. It was a sports bra that can tell how hot you are and then it will change its shape so it'll basically open like vents. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so, I mean, I can, that, that's... That sounds like a good idea. You know, you're really hot, so so it cools you down. But then the other one that they did was a dress, which is kind of inspired by puffer fish, I suppose, in that when it detects elevated levels of stress and changes in body temperature that might suggest you that you've got kind of a fight or flight response happening, it expands into this, these like wings come out, so you look... I guess, more formidable. It's exactly what you want, isn't it? You're standing in front of an audience of, say, 200 people giving an important career-defining speech and your dress explodes. Exactly. I'm not sure that's something that I would necessarily want to wear. But then there are, so there are other companies that are making this dress called the paparazzi dress, which when lights flash at you, when there are the paparazzi surrounding you, which obviously you know, happens to me all the time, then it flashes lights back at them. So it renders their photos useless, basically. And just as in the way that, you know, Skype, for example, has transformed being able to keep in touch with friends and family over long distances because it's so much better to see them, why not get you and your loved one at a distance a hug shirt? These are available from cutecircuit.com. That company does a whole bunch of amazing things. The hug shirt, you put yours on. The website makes it sound like you give yourself a hug and then it transforms that haptic stimulus to the hug shirt wearer at the other end so you can sort of give them a hug. Uh, by proxy. As long as it's cheaper than the air flight to actually reunite those people. <laughs> yeah. It would be a bit weird if you weren't expecting a hug as well, wouldn't it? If your shirt just to suddenly start squeezing you. They also make a Twitter dress which shows your, well, your Twitter feed, as we were mentioning earlier. Yeah, and, there, and just generally there's some quite established technology that then can be worked into clothing established electronics probably I should say that can be quite easily worked into clothing it's just how cheap it is and how much people want it. On the other side there's the kind of nanomaterials responsive materials that are much more cutting edge science and it's going to be a lot longer before that can safely and reliably be used in clothes. What would it be like to go to a conference right where people are wearing a whole bunch of this kind of stuff um, right now kind of the, the big discussion is how many of us are going to be able to get a, a dress with Pluto on it by the time of the planetary meeting next month. Um, but that's just a static picture of Pluto from the New Horizons flyby. Can you imagine going to a conference like AGU and having like your Twitter feed like glowing on your dress as you're walking around? You're all seriously about to get dresses with Pluto on them. Well, there's planning. There are plans in the works. That's amazing. Can you send some to the London office? Definitely the pictures, at least. <laughs> yeah, I want a Pluto shirt. I want the Mochizuki shirt. Do you? There's a lovely design, actually. Yeah, the, the illustration going with your story, Davide. So maybe if we could do some kind of haptic mathematical shirt, I don't know, where you can explore the proof by like pushing on an area and it takes you to another level of analysis. I could see that working in topology. So yeah, you could wear a dress that changes shape to help you demonstrate your latest impenetrable mathematical proof. It's, uh, it's niche, isn't it? It's not the first business idea. I think we came up with a range of bed, bath and beyond Rosetta-themed yep. pieces of kit at some point in one previous episode. Filet-shaped soap dispensers? I don't remember. All right, well, um, look out for Alex's Pluto dress slash shirt on a catwalk slash AGU meeting near you. And make sure you go to nature.com slash news for more on all of those stories. The proof of Mochizuki, Davide's profile, was out earlier this month. Lizzie's Q&A with the nanomaterials designer and all of Alex's coverage on the Jeff Marcy case. Thank you to Alex Witsey, to Davide Castelvecchi and Lizzie Gibney. And if you haven't got your fill of their wittering, 
things on nature.com slash news, then make sure you follow them on Twitter. Guys, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at, at Lizzie Gibney. I'm at D Castelvecchi. I'm at Alex Witze, and I better spell that, A-L-E-X-W-I-T-Z-E. And I'm at Minnie Kerry. And if Twitter's not even your medium, make sure you drop us a line on podcast at nature.com. Tune in next time. Thanks for listening.